Andrea Barrett. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's, well, it's great to see you. Great to great to have you here in the studio. This this uh, this talk is pre-taped. Um, Andrea uh, has been on tour this fall with her latest novel, The Air We Breathe, and uh, this is put out by Norton, and we're going to hear a little, a couple minutes of that later in the in the program uh, to start us off. I'm going to read the the introduction. Uh, the I'm sorry, the introduction. No, the bio. Andrea Barrett has received the National Book Award for Fiction, Ship Fever, 1996, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Servants of the Map, 2002. She teaches at Williams College in the MFA program for writers at the Warren Wilson College. Awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2001, she was also a fellow at the Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. She lives in North Adams, Massachusetts. And I'm sure there's just millions of things to add to that. <laughs> Her hobbies, uh, <laughs> origami, and no. no origami. No, no. Never even dabbled in it. No. <laughs> no. Too, too fussy. You know, and precise, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. And more, is it more like skydiving, Andrea? What, what would no, you... but I like to hike and climb and snowshoe and a, a lot of outdoors things. So I used to kayak when I was younger, although I don't anymore. River kayaking or ocean kayaking? Um, river like, kayaking. So you can, you're comfortable with being flipped underwater and riding yourself. Yeah, I, I actually had a good role. It took me a while to learn it, but um, once you have a good role, you can go almost anywhere. So even yeah. off waterfalls, <laughs> so <laughs> kind of smaller ones. But I never did. But um, but I had friends who did. Um, yeah, it's fun. A good role. That seems yeah. like um, some sort of. Um, mantra to shoot for somehow I don't know I know it's that's funny I've never thought about that but if you um if you think about that in the context of your life having the ability to be knocked upside down nearly drowned and pop back up again is a good thing yeah, and go back to breathing go back to breathing <laughs> absolutely right yeah well and and so you've been you're in town in Ann Arbor for the Carl Port uh, the Writing in Public Conference that's right um and and how how do you know Carl how uh, I, I actually don't know Carl well, but um, I've been in his bookshop a great many times. I've been visiting in Ann Arbor on and off since, I think, 1993. Um, my first writing teacher was Nicholas Del Banco, who is, as you know, at the MFA program yes. here and ran it for a long time. And yes. so he had me many years come to read or give a Hopwood lecture or take care of the graduate students for a semester, all sorts of things. And Whenever I've been in town, Shaman Drum has also has always been my sort of refuge and place where I would go sign and browse for books and look around and just hang. So it was very fun to come back here and, and participate in this. Oh, well, it's great to have you here. And Thanks. so interesting to hear about your, your long history with, with Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, I never expected that I would get to know it well, but, but actually I have over the years. I'm very fond of it. Well, Andrea, let's um, let's talk a little bit about um, about your your writing. Why not? It's living writers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I I wanted to just uh, say I've I've loved uh, I've loved your writing since reading Ship Fever. Thank you. And um, and and I love the the aspect where you're one of the writers that seems to be able to seamlessly um, uh, help, uh, 
bring us to inhabit this world of science, uh, and which is probably you know the the most boring place to start when speaking with you. So I apologize for no, that. And since it's so obvious, but um, just just for our our listeners and for my own <laughs> edification, um, life of science. How how is that? Uh, is it something that? that um, can obsesses you so that's why it comes out because obviously relationships are what is at the uh, at the core of each of your your uh, each story yeah it's um, I mean in a way it's natural material for me I actually meant to be a scientist and um, I went to college in I went to Union College in Schenectady and there were wonderful biology teachers there and I was a biology major with really every intention of going off to get a PhD in biology and doing that with my life. Um, I went to graduate school. I didn't even make it through my first semester. I was, Why was that? Because like, I was so bad at it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I really was. I was horrible at it. Um, and once I dropped out, I just, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. It, I loved science. I loved reading about science. But reading about science and doing science are completely different things, and that was something I hadn't understood as a graduate student. So it took me a long while to get back on my feet. I had a lot of different jobs. Um, eventually, I just started writing, trying to teach myself to write. Had you always been a, a reader? Like I was always who a crazy, passionate reader. For fiction as well as science reading, I'd imagine. Uh, mostly fiction, mostly. yeah, since I was very young. But I grew up on a very little... Um, town in Cape Cod and the place where I went to high school mostly people didn't go to college and actually I didn't know it was possible to be a writer I'd never met a writer I thought writers were dead and lived in Russia um <laughs> right. I just, you know right. if somebody has said to me oh do you want to be a fiction writer I couldn't even think that question I could think about being a biologist because I had a really good biology teacher in high school and we live near Woods Hole, so I, I had that example of people going out onto the ocean and doing something out there. I didn't know what. Um, but writing was very far away from me. It took me a long time to stumble backwards into it. Um, I worked for about it was a little over 10 years before I even published a story. I was very slow. Well, thank goodness you were slow, because that seems to be part of the the formative part of your work too even the I'm still a slow writer it's yes yeah, yeah. and what does that mean to you why like why even call it slow because well, because I have friends who are fast <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. you know it doesn't seem it doesn't seem slow to me it just it's how I work and um but I, I do have friends who are um they're smarter than I am and they they're faster than I am oh, and I they just they're very that. productive <laughs> Um, so I've just had to accept that over the years. You know, as with every other area in life, we have our own natural rhythms, rhythms and our own paces. And, uh, you know, really getting better at writing, getting better at almost anything has a lot to do with with understanding what those rhythms are in ourselves and working with them, not trying to fight against them. I'm, I'm not clever. I'm not speedy. I don't think fast on my feet. I never get anything right the first time it's how I make my work is to do it 40 times and 
and do it iteratively, iteratively, again and again and again, extending, tearing things down, building up other things, tearing them down again. That's how I find it. People are all different. Um, when you're in that process, Andrea, is it that you've you've written through what you believe to be the entire story and then you're returning to, to the beginning or you're going just to different pieces of the story and tearing it down, as you say, and, it's actually and both re-entering those things. it? Uh, horribly. It's, you know, I both will build many wings and tear them down in the process and then I will get to what I think is the end and I will be utterly wrong about the shape that really just everything anything that can be wrong about a piece of fiction usually is wrong in the how first draft but how do you how are you able to sense it is it because you walk away from it from for a while or is it that you have people that you trust as close readers and when they ask you questions you then rethink uh, or it's both those things I, I do um, I do leave things all the time I, I finish a draft and put it away for somewhere between weeks and months because I know when I'll go when I go back to it I'll see all that's that's gone awry. And I also do have a couple of uh, trusted readers. Most um, importantly, my friend Margot Livesey. We've been sharing work for 15 years now. She reads all the drafts of everything I write, and I read all hers. And and we ask each other questions. And sometimes the most innocent-seeming question on Margot's part, um, well, why did she go to that island? You know, I'll suddenly realize I'm missing like a whole wing of the story, or I've, or I've and that will cause me to restructure everything. So I'm very lucky to have a reader like that. Mm. Yes, and someone yeah. that you you can trust to, who is interested in understanding your work, what, yes, the absolutely. ideas at work in it, rather than what because is her work is her work similar to yours? It's not actually. Margot's a um, brilliant writer whose concerns. In the broadest sense, our concerns are the same. We're obsessed with language. We're obsessed with shape. We want the prose to be as clean and crystalline as it can be. We're both very hard workers. We're both massive redrafters. So that's what's in common between us. But um, our, the matter of our books could hardly be more different. And in, in a way, I think that's helped us. Um, we're not sort of in each other's faces in terms of what we're writing about. Um, Margot, among other things, is a brilliant plotter, and I can not really plot my way out of a paper bag, so our, our work even starts differently, um, and it runs differently. And we're obsessed, of course, with different things in terms of subject matter. And and so um, so yours, would you say, your writing is, is very character-based, then? That's, is that what you start with? Um, what's the germination? It's been different things for different pieces of fiction. Um, more often than starting with character, though, it starts with a, an image or a set of words or a place um, localized in a specific time. It's, it's often some time and place and sequence of words, three or four words or, or, or a picture that I've seen that will start it. And then the characters crystallize around and in that place and setting. And then, alas, much later, uh, I start to think of something for them to do. <laughs> <laughs> what they're sort of driving towards. Yeah. The, and and how is it because, because um, uh, you said you're, you, you're very hardworking. And, and mm. so um, how does, this, how does this, this image or this phrase or the picture come to you? Is it because you're sort of sitting down almost each day? Or is it when you're taking 
a long walk or, or or how does how does that start or is it something that where you're writing and then it just emerges and you're like this is what I'm interested in you know it's actually all those things I, I do walk a lot I have a dog and I love to be outside oh I, what I kind walk, of dog oh she's a horrible little pound mutt um very sweet to me and and very ill-behaved um she fights with other dogs she's bad um, <laughs> I hope she's probably listening <laughs> I'm sure no. uh, but it, but she's great walking company. Um, so yes, walking. Yes, on planes and airplanes. Yes, swimming across a lake. But also yes, reading. Yes, writing something that seems totally unrelated and really between one keystroke and the next. All writers do this. You're writing a sentence and between two words, another world opens up. A, a, what seems like a parenthesis turns into a paragraph, turns into another story or a book. You just see because your butt's in the chair and you're working and your brain's in that mode something cracks open sometimes um that's wonderful that's the that's the gift part of it yes yeah well well thank goodness that you you pay attention to that too you know that then and let it I'm I'm gesturing to like some, but only finding the word blossom. I'm thinking, okay, you don't have to try to use all your biology. <laughs> I don't know what was the germination of that, Andrea. Um, <laughs> well, um, uh, I I'm thinking like life of science and and what and the characters. Of course, um, when I'm entering your world, Andrea, what I'm first uh, struck by is um, especially in. Um, Let's see. In the air, um, the air we breathe, um, as the strong voice within it, which is uh, the collective voice. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could. Uh, uh, you're going to read a little bit of sure. that for us. Maybe when we come back after the break. Okay, that sounds good. Um, uh, but uh, let's see. Well, why don't we take that short break now? And uh, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program Andrea Barrett, and we're talking about her latest novel, The Air We Breathe.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on the program, Andrea Barrett, um, I'm T. Hetzel, and we've got Jesse Johnston, engineering as ever, intrepid. Um, Andrea, would you mind uh, reading a part uh, from the book, The Air We Breathe? Sure. I'm just going to read the opening. Um, Imagine a hill shaped like a dog's head, its nose pointed south and resting on crossed front paws. The main buildings of Tamarack State Sanatorium for the treatment of tuberculosis, including the two long brick wings where we used to cure, are set where the eyes would be. There's a siding at the base of the hill, four posts, a metal roof, space for a cart and the portable steps, where the train makes a special stop, and where, on arrival day, we'd each looked up to see the sanatorium windows staring back at us. We all remember looking down for the first time, after getting settled in one of those wings, to see the new arrivals sagging down the steps or being passed on stretchers through the windows of the train. Back then, we lay on our porches in orderly rows, the two chairs assigned to each room, still separated by shoulder-high panels and sheltered by canvas awnings. Fields surrounded us, they still do, and also a river, three ponds, and the road curving down toward the village. After the cities from which we'd come, this looked to us like wilderness. Rivers, mountains, wild geese honking. The air meant to cure us, pouring antiseptically through the woods. The Adirondacks were new to us, and we were shocked to learn that Canada was so near. The snow shocked us too, along with the dark winter days and the heavy mist that sometimes blanketed the fields. A fox, hunting, would brush his tail through the surface, leaving a track we followed with our eyes. Ducks escaping the fox would burst into the air as if they'd been shot. The sight made us think that our own lives, hidden similarly, might still be launched on their proper paths. We weren't a big group even then, 60 women and 60 men if every spot was taken, and a single arrival shifted scores of relationships, as did a single discharge or a death. On the porches, we gossiped as eagerly as we drew breath. Twice each week, if the mist didn't block our view, the train pulled up to our unmarked siding and we inspected who might join us next. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. I I think I could sit and listen to you read for ages, actually. Nah, you'd fall asleep. <laughs> it's beautiful, though. It seems because um, I haven't gone back as as I've read the book. I haven't uh, yet gone back to start it again. So it's always wonderful to have that moment after you've read the ending, then to to then to have you read the beginning. It's sort of. You, I, I can revisit it, see it again. It's so differently. Beautiful how it was, how you laid out and gave us the setting. And, and in Thanks. one phrase that they still do, um, I think that's interesting because you said I think it's a, talking about the fields and the, mm-hmm. and the woods. They and they still do. So with that one slight uh, three words, um, you established that these these the, the we the us that we're learning about that they're still where they were. Um, Although some things happen. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, one one hopes yes. that a beginning works that way. But um, I love to go back to the beginnings of books. 
two right after I finish them and think about the beginning again, how it frames the ending now that I know what the ending is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think in, I think some, I can't remember now which, which, if it was in The Air We Breathe, Andrea, but I think there's a moment, I think it is actually when Leo is talking with Ephraim, perhaps, and they have like a, a, a just a, a lack of good reading materials available f- mm-hmm. for them up on the hill there in the yeah. sanatorium. And, uh, and so Ephraim's reading kind of a terrible, like a sort of a, not such a good book, but he's still reading it. And then, um, and Leo has been able to find a book that he prizes, the H.G. Uh, Wells book. Yes, that's right. And I loved how you said, and then I have to let you talk because I'm doing far too much talking right now, um, how, how Leo said what well, was a very slow beginning, but then he was sort of, you know, grasped, you know, it was just really clutched within the story. And I thought often in very good books, or uh, that is the case. There's not it like is. this big hook in the beginning that grabs you. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a... That's our decades prejudice. We want an opening that's very grabby. Um, editors often cry for that. Sometimes book reviewers cry for it. Oh, we want to just leap into the action. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And I admire books that do do that. But actually, the books I've loved best all my life have been books that that build more slowly, um, that start descriptively, that set a world quietly and set the characters in place before setting them in motion. Um, and that's not a quality that's prized very much anymore, at least commercially. Although it's funny, when I talk to readers, it, they often seem to like that in the same way. So I don't know why the prejudice in publishing and reviewing is so much for something that starts very um, quickly. I, I think it's from television and movies, um, and that's how those work. You can't set up a scene very slowly and descriptively. You have no words. You have to start people talking. <laughs> Unless it's masterpiece theater. Unless, <laughs> of course. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you like that. I really love that in novels, too. And I really appreciated actually seeing it make its uh, have a surface in a novel. Oh, good! You know those ideas. Yeah. It was really a wonderful m- moment. I felt for those people with their box um, of donated books. That that was and actually still is very common in all sorts of institutions. Sometimes, Prison. yeah, prisons, um, all kinds of state hospitals. Sometimes the libraries are are quite bare, but for what people donate. And people donate everything from manuals of contract bridge to old gardening handbooks to Reader's Digest condensed books to wonderful novels, but they're all jumbled together and what you have to read is what's there. So, Especially if you're, you're sort of a, in isolation as those as communities they were. are. Yep. Yes, and, and in the community you create and the air we breathe. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about since since in the opening the the voice the the collective voice where you say we or us. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started the idea of this book and the characters were coming to you, Andrea, um, was that how the writing began, or is that something that you found within the revision would be necessary for how the story progresses? Um, I, I, I didn't start that way. I started with quite a different idea of the book. Um, I was with the book a long time, almost six years, and it, and it went through the oddest evolutions along the way. Um, oh, so. 
Um, you know, partly I thought it was going to be a more straightforward book about people in a tuberculosis sanatorium. I didn't think it was going to be very much about the war. And I was um, in New York City doing a fellowship at the library to research this book, and um, I happened to start there on September 10th, 2001. So that was what, of course, the year in New York City turned out to be about. And being in New York um, in the aftermath of the attacks, seeing how the city reacted, just seeing everything that was going on in the city, um, of course, inevitably, it made me think so much about the analogous situations just before America entered World War I, the, um, the fear of terrorism, the crackdown on immigrants, a certain um, kind of lockdown mentality, a kind of anti-immigrant hysteria. Um, that, the, you mention a banner also in the mm-hmm. book, in the novel, where it was... Oh, I can't remember. That banner's ex- real. Uh, yeah. yeah. Ex- the exact, can you, I can't remember the exact wording, though, but it was... You know, I can't now either. So. There were these things called preparedness parades that used to march down Fifth Avenue, hundreds of thousands of people, um, all holding anti-German banners. And this was before we had actually entered the war. Um, all sorts of astonishing things happened during particularly 1915 and 1916 before before the states declared war. And so that came to be a very important part of the novel. And as it did, of course, that changed everything about the structure of the novel and the characters. And that's also when the we voice entered. Um, I don't know where that came from, though. It caused me a lot of trouble. It, It entered before I understood what it was for. So a lot of the interim drafts, they're in this collective voice but why is the voice there and who is the group of people? Where are the boundaries of the group of people? Who has access to the point of view and who doesn't? Who's included? Who's not included? It just took me a really long time to understand that. Yes. And, yeah. And then finally I did. And then it, then it was like, oh, well, of course it's them talking. That's what the whole point is. <laughs> um, and then the last couple of revisions, once I understood what the voice was for, were much more straightforward cause, because I knew what I was revising toward. And that's always true for writers. Once you actually can see what you're trying to make, it's not completely hazy anymore, then you can revise with intention. It's much more straightforward. Yes. Uh, and, and it seems so that adds to one of the layers of the us and them division uh-huh. of that's happening in the country uh-huh. against the the for example, the Germans or, or immigrants in general. Right. Um, yes. Or people who are sick or people who are set off in any way from... Who are people who are poor. People who are poor, people who have different politics, people who have different religion, people who are interested in the revolution in Russia. Um, there's a million ways to be set off from mainstream society now as then. Um, and then, you know, that's when the Espionage Act comes from. That's when a lot of things come from that we are still using or suffering the consequences of now. Those those things we see now all have their roots in this time during World War One. Yes. It was that was really well done in the book because I did I I I got that. that oh good. What, yes. <laughs> um uh with with um, I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't read the book yet, but it it is that this voice, the we collective, is very necessary for what happens to Leo at the end. Yes, and um, and also I think it's important that the 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 we uh, the, the us who we're we're shown throughout the novel, um, they they are not innocent. 
No, they're not. And uh, um, I think that's what it took me for a while. It took me a while and many drafts to understand that they were implicated too, that they could not just be passive narrators uh, sitting back telling us what had happened to Lee or what had happened, that they had to be implicated in the action. They had in some sense to be the action. Well, let's let's take a short break, Andrea, okay. and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio uh, we have Andrea Barrett. Um, and Andrea just uh, kindly read us a section from her her novel, The Air We Breathe. Um, let's talk a little bit about characters now. Andrea, sure. are you up, up for it? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, let's. How about Irene? She was. She she doesn't surface until. Uh, like mid quarter to midway midway yeah. through the book, yeah. Um, but she's quite quite a pivotal character, um, and, uh, and and there's a, an interesting uh, move uh, that that you make as a writer. And I, I wanted to I was curious about it because you have the collective voice mm-hmm. um, come in at the beginning of the the cha- at the beginning of the chapter and. It's, talk about identifying themselves but saying well we're not as important to talk about right now who we have to tell you about is Irene 
And do you, do you remember that section of that? <laughs> of course you do. You remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, to me, it felt interesting because it was almost as if, um, but you did it seamlessly, but where the, the writer, where your intentions were coming out, where, mm-hmm. so you were part of the we then. Yeah, I, I suppose in some sense I'm always part of the we. Um, one of the other odd things about the voice, if it had just been a collective first-person voice, I would have been done with it three years ago. Um, it does seem remarkably tricky, this, but interesting. As a well, constraint. it's actually a first-person plural omniscient voice. Yes, yes, um, and that's just so wrong. <laughs> it does make the first introduction of the us after you've been in the other mm-hmm. omniscience sort of like a jolt. Like yeah. you think, a what? Wait, yeah. us? You know, hopefully. Us. By the time you get to the end of the book, you understand how the collective first-person voice has the ability to speak omnisciently. You understand what that is all about. Yes. But it is purposefully odd throughout the book in the sense that it speaks as a regular first-person voice seeing certain things, but it also, at certain points, goes uh, into a close third-person point of view of a small selected set of characters. and. And I think the alert reader wonders, well, how come that voice gets to go inside that head? What's up with that? Um, and I, I do mean you for—I do mean for you to be worrying about that a little, um, because that hopefully will drive you towards the end of the book, trying to figure out how is that working? How do they have access to that information? But of course, as a writer, it also gave me. Um, the ability to, to kind of have the best of both worlds. When you're wor- working with a first-person voice, you have the flexibility, you have the ability to summarize, you can do a lot of things in first-person, but you can't get inside anybody's head. And that's just very annoying to me sometimes. When you have a close third, you can sink very deeply into someone, you can express a lot of thoughts and feelings, but you can't do a whole other set of things. Um, kind of this way I was able to do both which of course made me very jolly as a writer so yes um, yeah. but I think so it's a freedom that you definitely mm-hmm. earned though because I think if you because if, if I hadn't explained it it would have been prob- problematic if it ha- if I hadn't made the properties of the voice part of the structure and plot of the book I think it would have been problematic yes and and, and but it made it but it made it a genuine it made it a very a, a very interesting other level that was brought to the the, the world, the book itself. Oh, good. I'm glad and if it works that way. I, I actually don't think it does for everyone. But no, no. Well, well, you can't please everyone. <laughs> you, you can't. But clearly, some people did just did not get what what was going on with that. And you know, you just have to accept that as a writer that if you're gonna stretch your boundaries and and do something that's quite odd in terms of voice or structure and um, that it's just not going to work for everybody. And it's interesting because it, but with that stretching of the boundaries and the freedom, I can see how I believe it was able to work because of what you mentioned at the beginning of our, of our conversation, Andrea, about your uh, your reworking and tearing down and this revision that you go through. Because I think yeah. once you said you got that, you were... Yeah, I, you knew. And and I had to know. I mean, you always have to know with a book um, what the end is before you can get everything in the rest of the book to lead up to the end. Some people see the end more clearly and earlier so they can write drafts that early that drive toward that end. 
my process doesn't work that way. So, um, so it takes me a long time to see the end, and then there's lots of revisions after that too. Um, I. Uh, going back to Irene for a moment. Yes, sorry. Uh, with, no, actually, I was like, I know I brought up because because yeah. uh, she was interesting in so many ways because what she was pivotal to join some of the characters together so that we could see their stories, but also um, giving us that wonderful again sort of that 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 walk into the world of science with like the history of like the X rays and yeah, that's actually really interesting material and um, that happens to me all the time for good or ill um, I certainly did not conceive of her in the beginning as being such a big character but as I started to look at old x-ray machines and, and learn the history of the people who had made them and built them and experimented with them and run them it, it just fascinated me so much that I wanted to make a character who could really bring that that world alive for us um, and then inevitably, once you start in on a character involved in that kind of material, the metaphorical possibilities are very rich. And so that spread out onto Eudora, and a lot of imagery entered the book that became very important um, in terms of in terms of x-rays, in terms of seeing below the surface of people, seeing below the surface of relationships. Those things are obvious now. They weren't to me in the beginning. Um, and the book turned out to be more about seeing and being seen and being seen incorrectly or very occasionally correctly than I had uh, ever understood at the beginning. And I, I think that's because of the x-ray material. Mm. And the story that you gave Irene um, as a character w was really compelling as well and how it was revealed um, even just in, in the last couple of chapters where you actually understand some pieces that even brought her to the the sanatorium and I love the Marie Curie um parts too because I had no idea about the it's just it's oh, it's interesting it's lovely how you you bring these facts in well I believe to be facts I don't think they were um where Marie Curie was going actually out in World War One to different and setting up x-ray x stations yeah no and, that's a uh, that was a big episode in her life and also in her daughter's life uh, one of her daughters named Irene, of course, which is why I named Joe's my character Irene. Yeah, but there's um, there's wonderful pictures and old histories of of X-rays of uh, Marie Curie standing next to this little wagon built on the chassis of a um, a very early Ford. You just wouldn't believe what these machines looked like, and she was incredibly brave. She went all over battlefields running. Um, she used the car engine to generate electricity to run this very primitive x-ray machine. Um, and the x-rays were actually generated by a little glass tube, and the tube is um, just hanging. People stuck it on a stick. There's a wooden stick and maybe an iron clamp or maybe some wire, depending on where they are, and the tube is just hanging there. We're so frightened, rightly, of x-rays now. We have yes. lead aprons and lead shielding, <laughs> and you don't even different see... Different rooms. <laughs> different rooms, and you don't even see. I don't think most people know where the x-rays come from in the machine. You just see a, a cone with all this shielding around it. Yes. Um, but then the tube that generated them is just dangling in the air with the x-rays flying all around everywhere, because who knew? Who knew? Yes, yeah. and and you make that clear in the book too, like the the enormous sacrifice that people mm -hmm. do 
make as they're pursuing these new they're obsessively going towards this this new science or these 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 pictures and but you have but also you give us the sense that um even though some terrible things have happened to Irene like physically like in, with her hands and mm-hmm. um she wouldn't have done it differently and no, I and, think she's very fulfilled in her yes. work actually and um I mean, I'm always interested in, in amateur scientists, people working in fields before they become defined as fields and start to get funded and shunted off into universities. And with x-rays, as with so many things, um, a lot of women were involved in the early years before it sort of got taken away <laughs> by the medical field and, and you know regulated and put inside um, physicians' offices, and then only men and only people with degrees could could use that technology for a while. But for a few years, you actually could, and people did, um, order parts to build your own x-ray machine from the back of Scientific American or any one of a number of popular magazines for a couple of bucks and set up a generator and put some stuff together and have x-rays. And <laughs> that- people did all the time. <laughs> Some, I know that we're supposed, you know, obviously our civilization, we're marching onwards, we're so advanced. But when thinking about things like this, I think there are elements that, I mean, there just must be new ways that we're advancing that, I, like maybe in computers that people are risking. I think about and, people starting yeah. Apple Computer yeah. in their garage. Yeah. You, you know, people, there's always someone doing that. That's true. That's yeah. true. It doesn't have to be as if something's been taken away from us, our kind of schutzpah or whatever. That's probably not even the right word to, to kind of do it yourself and to invest, like learn and investigate rather than being told mm-hmm. um, but well what what are you are you uh, what are you working on right now like what's are, are you or are you taking sort of uh, in your method of working do you take a, a, a break after because you've done the the fall book tour um, I'm actually working on some stories now um, I did take a little break when I finished the book but publishing is such that between the time I finish it and the time a book comes out it's it's often a year. Um, so I can't not write for a whole year. That would be terrible. Um, <laughs> Crazy, in fact. Yeah. So, um, so I'm working on a couple of long stories. One is actually connected to the air we breathe that happens after the end of the book, and the other is unrelated, although it's related to the same set of characters I'm often working with. Is that why uh, at the end of the book there's the the fam- like the history mm-hmm. of the? Is that why you put it at the end? Andrea, um, because it's something that you, that's where it belongs because you're going forward with that now? Uh, it was a couple different things. I've, that uh, family chart or genealogy has been growing for a little over 10 years now. And, and every book since Ship Fever, my editor has talked to me about, oh, maybe we should print it. Because all the characters in the last four books actually are, are loosely connected into this web. Um and I, I've been reluctant to print it because it keeps growing, but we finally decided this time, okay, we'll put a version in there. It's at the end because for people who come to this novel without having read the previous three books, it should stand alone, and then the chart should just function as an epilogue. If you look at it quite closely, um, the fate of several of the characters that's left open-ended here, some things are revealed in the chart. You know what happens to two of them, at, at least... Yes. Very briefly, you know what happens. Um, for people who have read the other books and know the relationship of all the families, they know who Leo Marburg is related to, they know who Eudora is related to, they can look at the chart and cast back over the earlier stories and novels. And that's fun for some people. 
so it's just there to be fun. I could see how you might be reluctant to put it in, though, because things, as you're, you know, looking forward and writing, yeah. things are also things keep getting added. And, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, I can't, I can't change them once they're <laughs> set. You know, once somebody's married to someone else and had kids in a certain year, right. um, I have to. If I'm going to keep working with these families, I, uh, that becomes a new fixed point in the universe, and I, I can't change them. Um, do you think that that's do you do you are you ever writing things that are outside the loose these even loose connections of the characters, Andrea? You know, right I, now, I often or? think that I am, but it's become really odd over the last maybe eight years or so. Uh, I often start something now, thinking, "Well, I'll just write something unrelated." Um, but the web has gotten so magnetic for me that um, I'll start something, I'll write a few pages or maybe a few drafts, and then I'll wake up one morning with a thought, the approximate shape of which is, oh, Sophie is probably the nephew of the next door neighbor of the cousin of Leo Marmark. So, <laughs> you know, so I always seem to find some way now to make at least a light connection back to somebody who's known before. I don't know what that's about. Um, why but it's I do important it. to you. Apparently, <laughs> since I can't <laughs> stop doing it. Um, I, my, it. It both generates stories in some way, and I think it makes me feel rooted in their world in some way that, that seems to be necessary for me as a writer. I, d I don't really understand it. but mm. I wonder if that... Um, I don't think you could. I don't. I'm, I'm glad you don't understand it. Yeah. Actually, you I can't understand this could, stuff. No, um, but I wonder if this. Do you, with your, with the writing and the language itself, how how you're structuring the phrasing or the, do you feel like that, is also somehow formed by the, the reality of this world that's all interconnected, so that the. I just, I guess, I wonder what you think about the writing itself, like the language and how you write. If that, because what you've done here with the the structure and the voice is very, very different uh -huh. than what's come before. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what do you, what do you think, Andrea, about uh, that? Like, is the writing that maybe that's unanswerable as well? Um, and, you know, it all comes out of me. So in some <laughs> sense, it's all related. Um. I think at its best, having this structure that arches over four or five books and having these connections um, pushes me in the same way that poets who are writing in formal structures get pushed, which is to say, I can't do the first thing that comes to mind anymore, really, ever. I can't do the easiest thing that comes to mind. I can't make the obvious leap in a story because I am confined by all these connections and implications and um, relationships I know about in the past, some that I know about in the future that you don't yet know about. So all that boxes me in, which can be a bad feeling, but more often um, makes me do something unexpected. It forces me to find a path that I couldn't have found in some other way because I'm constrained formally. And for me, that's good. And do you think that's how then the voice emerged from this book, Andrea? I do think so. Yeah. yeah, I had to find some other way to say this than the obvious way. Hmm. So, you know, maybe it was under the pressure of not wanting to do it in the most obvious and straightforward way that this voice emerged and found a different way. Well, how lucky then. It was in lucky. A way. Yes. Yeah. And it seems like by working in this tradition, um, 
uh, Faulkner or, or, or some of these other, or, or Lawrence Durelic, the way they wrote and the, the worlds they inhabited kept, kept growing, but you could rely on uh, the presentation of the, the language, how the ideas were uh, articulated. Yeah, yeah, I, hopefully there's some sort of unity um, of voice across the books, even when the structure is very different. I'm not sure that's true, but but I hope it's true. And, and are you, um, just to make a, a quick jump, are you also, do you ever write essays, Andrea, or other, or poems, or what? Other? I, I don't write poems, and I, I very seldom write nonfiction. I've written I don't know, maybe five essays in my whole life, I, always under duress, only when someone makes me. <laughs> um, and then I complain bitterly about it. Although I actually quite like a couple of them now, and, and I won't choose to do it by myself. Someone has to beat me with a stick to get me to do it. Can I, I haven't read them. Are they? Uh, where are they in the world? Are um, they in collection? I guess I'll just look it up. Yeah, or, there's one called The Sea of Information that, that was reprinted in... Um, Best American Essays a couple years ago, and also, strangely, in Best American Science Writing. And that that grew out of a talk that I was forced to give, and then someone said, oh, you really have to make this into an essay, and, and sort of flogged me to revise it until I did. And and now it seems okay to me, and it's strange to me that I wouldn't just write it by I, myself, but I never do. I wonder why the reluctance. Because I'd rather write fiction, always. You know, there's there's a limited amount of minutes in the world, and... Um, I'd always rather write fiction than do anything else or than write anything else. Is it because of the imagination? Absolutely. Well, you know, writing essays feels like work. It is work. Do you think it's also because of the, the, reveal, the, the part that's like revealing in essays, whereas in fiction, of course, you're always, you're always in it. But uh, No, that is part of it. I, I don't like to talk about myself directly. I mean, we are always revealed in our fiction, of course. The deepest part of us is always there. That's where the stuff comes from. That's where the characters come from. But I really dislike talking about the facts of my life. And you can write essays without saying much about your life, depending on what you're writing about. But inevitably, you do have to say something at some point, and I'm so uncomfortable with that. Yeah, and the mind has to make itself really clearly presented on the page there, doesn't it? Yeah, Without apparently that. I don't like that. <laughs> well, well, um, but to the, towards the imagination. Absolutely, much more nice over there. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Living Writers, Andrea. Thanks. It's my pleasure. It's wonderful to talk with you. Um, we've been talking today, Andrea Barrett, uh, her latest book, The Air We Breathe, Breathe, um, thanks to Jesse Johnston for engineering. Thanks for listening, Ann Arbor, and those streaming in Seattle, Chicago, Florida, uh, Bermuda. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Up on the sand, up on the bay There is a quick and easy way you say Before you illustrate, I'd rather stay The man you think I am I'm not the man you think I am And sorrow's native son He will not smile for anyone And pretty girls may pray
Gracias. 